God, it's so good to be still and to know that you are God, and that you are our God, our Savior, the one who gave your life for us. Lord God, we ask today that you would speak to us through your word, that it would be fresh, that it would be real, that it would be relevant, that we would walk out of here knowing what you want for our lives and knowing how to pursue a closer walk with you, knowing that you are giving us that invitation today. Thank you, Father, for pouring out your spirit. Thank you for ministering to our hearts. We claim this because of the name of Jesus. Amen. It was one of those awkward moments. The crowd was just watching as it was happening and just wondering, okay, what's going to happen now? They thought that they had exactly in mind what this dignitary needed. Now, you've probably witnessed this before. In fact, it'll happen even at some church functions where a famous speaker or a famous individual is surrounded by a group of people who are carefully trying to watch out for all of his needs, making sure that that they're careful to keep that person away who, you know, the people who can bend the ear of the, the guest speaker, and you're like, okay, let's just try to route them over to this person instead. I'm not saying that there's anybody like that here. I'm just saying that it can happen. Okay, so these group of people were surrounding him and they were doing what they thought was their job. Their job was to make sure that he was protected. They were the filtering system. And there was another important person standing nearby and watching what was going on. And as he watched, he watched as this group of mothers with their children came up. And this man was so important that the group who was surrounding him began to say, no, sorry, um, not today. He's a little too busy for you. This isn't going to work out. Now, these mothers had come from quite some distance, and they had their children in their arms. Some of them were walking alongside of them. They had anticipation, excitement. They'd heard about who this guy was. They knew that maybe, just maybe, he would care enough about their kids. Maybe he understood what it was like for a mom. Didn't he, for 30 years, spend time with his own mom and dad? Doesn't he know what we're going through? But the disciples, as these mothers brought their children to Jesus, they said, don't bring kids to Jesus. He doesn't have time for kids. Before we go to Luke chapter 18, we're actually going to go to Mark chapter 10 because Mark just brings out some of the vividness of this story even more. This story and the next story are recorded in both uh, Matthew, Mark, and also in Luke, where we'll be looking at it in more detail, Luke chapter 18. But first we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 13. Then they that being the mothers, brought little children to him. In in the Gospel of Luke, it says infants. These are, are small children. These are children who the disciples, as they look at them, they say they can't understand. Jesus isn't going to be able to tell them some of his amazing teachings. Jesus isn't going to be able to do... This is going to be a waste of Jesus' time. They brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Have you ever in your own experience been trying to get closer to Jesus when the people who are supposed to be leaders, who are supposed to be closest to Jesus, are the ones who are pushing you away? 
who've discouraged you, who've stopped you. Maybe it's not even by the things that they've said to you, but maybe it's actually just in the way that they live. You see how they are and you say, if that's the way the church are, if that's the way leaders are, then I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And it has pushed you away from Jesus. Jesus' own disciples tried to stop mothers with babies in their arms from coming to Jesus because they thought moms and their kids are not that important. But verse 14 continues, when Jesus saw it, he was, what does it say? Not just unhappy, not just wanting to set them straight, but he was greatly displeased. He was indignant. He was upset. This is one of the few times where you find that Jesus is not happy at all. He's very upset with this situation. And this is what he says. He said to him, to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Basically saying to the leaders of his up-and-coming church, his up-and-coming kingdom, if you don't stop the kids from coming, they will come. Don't stop them. Don't hinder them. They want to come. And of all people most open to the gospel, it's kids. Of all people most open to a relationship with Jesus, it is children. And Jesus told us that time and time again. And he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Wow, talk about flipping the tables entirely. They had thought Jesus was too important for these children. And Jesus flips it around and says, If you don't accept me like these little children being held in their mother's arms, then you can't even hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice what Jesus does next. This is so impactful to the people who are around him. Verse 16, and he took them up in his arms. Can you imagine that? I mean, he's like pushing the disciples aside saying, no, you've got to let these kids come to me. You've got to let these moms bring their children to me. As an up-and-coming father, this means a lot to me to know that God cares about my two little girls. <laughs> that God, God already has in mind their future. That he's already designing a life for them. And for you, mom, who's sitting here in church today thinking, man, I've just about had it with my kids. I don't know how to help them anymore. Jesus understands. Jesus knows what you're going through, and he cares about it. These mothers come, and he says, let me take those kids. And he takes them up into his arms. And he's holding these children in his arms. That's how much he cares about children. That's how much he cares about babies. He holds them there in his arms. He lays his hands on them and he blesses them. Isn't Jesus beautiful? Friends, if you have a picture of God, if you have a picture of Jesus that isn't delightful, that isn't filled with love, please keep reading your Bible until you find that picture because Jesus is delightful. Jesus is filled with love. He's the God who comes close to babies. How much more tender and compassionate can you get than that? The God who picks up babies in his arms. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is who God is. Then he goes on 
In verse 17, the story continues. Verse 17 says, Now as he was going out on the road, so apparently this whole scene goes on and Jesus blesses these children. He takes them into his arm and then that, he, after he's finished blessing them all, then they begin to leave. And then Jesus decides, okay, it's time to move on to another place. And so he gets the disciples and they begin to head out on the road. And as they're heading out from this very scene, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Turn over to Luke chapter 18 with me. But do you see what's happening here? Sometimes we isolate stories in the Gospels and we don't realize that these are tied together so closely. Do you see why this person who we may refer to as the rich young ruler, here it, it just refers to him as somebody that comes up and kneels before Jesus. But do you see what has taken place to lead this rich young ruler to this moment? He has seen something in Jesus that he wants. He may be a ruler. He may have a lot of wealth. He may have a lot of stuff. He may be on the path to potentially being a part of the Sanhedrin. It tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. We don't know if that means in his own village or if he was already a part of the Sanhedrin. And yet, he sees in this humble Galilean prophet, this, this one who most of the rulers said, this is just a carpenter, and isn't his father Joseph, and why are you listening to him? But as he sees him blessing the children, as he sees them holding him in his arms, as he hears this beautiful teaching that, that the kingdom of heaven must be accepted like a child, he runs after Jesus. He kneels down. He takes this, this position of humility before this humble, homeless prophet named Jesus, who's also God on earth. And he says, good teacher, what must I do that I could inherit eternal life? Do you see what is sparking in the rich young ruler's heart? He's seeing something delightful in Jesus. He's seeing that Jesus is somebody he wants a relationship with. He's seeing that, that this Jesus is somebody who has a tenderness, a compassion, a love that, that he longs to experience more of himself. He recognizes that Jesus has something that he needs. And I think that that's why most of us are sitting here in church today. We know that Jesus has something that we need. We've seen something about Jesus. We're longing for something more. And so I think that this story speaks specifically to where many of us are at. Luke chapter 18, the same exact story, verse 18, that certain ruler, it, it, it emphasizes here, asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's lots contained here, but number one, what did he call him? What kind of teacher did he call him? A good teacher. Now in all of the rabbinical literature, they didn't refer to any rabbi or person as good. So this was something that he is intentionally doing. He's recognizing, wow, Jesus is good. And they didn't just throw that phrase around like we say that was a good piece of cake or that, that guy's good at basketball. But this person is good. Innately, there's something powerful, something beautiful, something desirable in Jesus. Good teacher. What shall I do to, what word does he use there? Inherit. Maybe he even recognizes some of what we talked about last week. That 
we can absolutely merit nothing by our good works. That there is no possibility that you or I can do something to merit the kingdom of heaven. He says, what do I have to do to inherit it? He recognizes that it's a gift. It's an inheritance that comes from God, from being a child of God. But he is asking, what must I do? What, what, what good thing do I have to do in order to become a child of God so that I can have this inheritance in my life? Verse 19, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Do you see how he's pointing out this this fact that he points out? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus wants for him to grasp who he really is. He isn't denying his divinity, but instead he's pointing out that, yes, I am really good, and do you recognize what that means? means. This is who God is. This is what God is like. God is the one who grabs babies and lifts them up in his arms. God is the one who blesses mothers who are struggling with knowing how to take care of their children. This is who God is. He really is good. Like James chapter 117 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting or shadow. He doesn't change. He's always good, constantly giving. This is the character of God. Verse 20, you know the commandments. And it's interesting, in Matthew, he actually says, well, you need to keep the commandments. This is an important part of being a part of the kingdom of heaven. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Where is he quoting from? The Ten Commandments. He's quoting directly from the last six of the Ten Commandments. The ones that have to do with how we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in fact, in I believe it's Matthew's version of the story, he ends by saying, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's encapsulating this picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven is to love people, to love them, to care about relationships. And he's explaining that this is why I treat these children this way. This is why I treat these moms this way. That's why I got upset with the disciples who were getting in between me and these children. When people get in between you and God, God will handle it. God wants to make sure that every barrier is broken down. God is the one who does the barrier breaking in getting you to himself. So Jesus tells him, keep these commandments and list these ones about, uh, about how we treat our neighbors. And then the ruler responds this way, verse 21. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. That seems like a pretty arrogant assumption, doesn't it? <laughs> I've done this my whole life. I, I'm good with this. I understand this, Jesus. Jesus, there's got to be something more because I already get this. And Jesus responds in verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Wow. At this point, the story suddenly gets really heavy. Suddenly it's a story that we're thinking, okay, what is Jesus doing here? But here's the key. Go back to Mark chapter 10 and notice what happens before Jesus says this to the rich young ruler. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 20, 
the, the, um, the rich young ruler responds and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, what does it say? Loved him. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and he loved him. This is something that isn't said about a lot of people. Obviously, Jesus loves people, but there is something special about this individual. And Jesus wanted a closer relationship with this young man. And so as he is asking him to go and sell all that he has and to give to the poor, he isn't asking him something that he wants to make it more difficult to have a relationship with him. Does that make sense? He loves him. He wants what's best for him. And sometimes love tells us tough things because that is what is needed in order to break down barriers in our lives. He looked at him. He loved him. He wanted a relationship with him. He was hoping that he would accept this invitation. And he looked at him and he said, look, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have. Now, what was he to do? Imagine what this was like. Here he is, somebody who owned all of these possessions. And I don't know, what do you think somebody back in the first century, what would a wealthy person own? What do you think if he's a very wealthy person? Livestock. He might have had a lot of camels, donkeys. What else do you think he had? Oxen. What else besides animals? Land. He probably owned a good bit of land and was, had farms on that land. Maybe he had some good produce built up in his barns. Uh, maybe he had some gold. Maybe he had some silver stored up. Maybe he had more than a couple pair of clothes. So Jesus is asking him to go and practically do something. What is he asking him to go do? He's saying, okay, I want you to go home and I want you to go and I want you to take your camels and I want you to take those camels and I want you to take those camels over to the market and I want you to sell those camels and I want you to get your donkeys and I want you to go and sell those donkeys and I want you to go to your land and I want you to, all of your land, all of your houses and I want you to put it up for sale and go through the realtor process. No, they didn't have that back then, but I want you to sell all of that and to get all of that money and then what? Give it to the poor. You see what he wants him to do? He says, I want for you to participate in the character of God. I want for you to have this joy that I have. I'm blessing, I'm giving, I'm doing good. I have come down from the throne of glory in heaven to this planet. I'm giving of my life and I want for you to participate and enjoy that yourself. And so he says, what I want you to do is to go and sell all that you have. Build up this massive amount of money and take it out And just have a grand time of making people's lives better. Because Jesus not only had a tender heart for children, but he had a tender heart for those who were in need. He had a tender heart for the poor. And if you today are struggling to make ends meet, Jesus cares for you where you're at. And he wants to help you. He wants to see you through. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 says that, We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus cares about where you're at. And Jesus wants for us to participate in making those relationships better. He wants us to be a conduit for making people's lives better. And so he calls this rich young ruler to something that would have been delightful to him. 
Statistics prove that, in fact. We talked about this about a year ago, but Stanford did a study about what it is that increases happiness in relationship to money. And they found that money actually can make you happy. Did you know that? The more money you have, the happier you can be on one condition. They found that the more money you give away, the happier you will be. (laughs) That was the exact correlation of the study that Stanford had. They found that the more money that was given away, the happier that people were. That's the only way that money can make you happier is if you are giving and making other lives better. This is what Jesus knew for the rich young ruler. And so when he looks at him and he loves him, he calls him to the thing that will make him happier. He calls him to the thing that will make the world around him better. He calls him to a life of absolute and total surrender. It sounds intense, doesn't it? But it really was what this young man needed. I love the picture that's described in the book Desire of Ages. It talks about how, first of all, this young man's love was kindled for Jesus. Desire of Ages, page 518, says this. He saw the love that Christ manifested toward the children brought to him. He saw how tenderly he received them. He took them up in his arms and his heart kindled with love for the Savior. Jesus asked this man to go a little bit further, but he knew that already kindled inside, burning inside of this young man was a love for Jesus. Seeing Jesus' love had kindled something inside of him that made him want something more. Well, the story goes on in Luke chapter 18, verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Now, it's a temptation for me when I'm reading through this to think, well, I'm a pastor, so I don't, this doesn't apply to me. I am obviously not very rich. But what did we say he had again? Probably some land, probably some gold, probably some camels and donkeys. I hopped in a car this morning and drove here after I had some fruit from a refrigerator And I used my cell phone to call my mom the other day. I have a computer with the internet. I don't know if you've heard of these things before, but I'm pretty sure that most of you have these same things in your life. And I'm pretty sure that this rich young ruler would have given up all that he had, probably just for the smartphone that's sitting in your pocket. Because that would be so astonishing to him, so incredible to him, that he would say, all right, I'll sell everything just to have that smartphone because I could talk to people around the world. This is incredible, and I have so much information, and it it could help me so much, let alone to have air conditioning on those hot Israel days. We have so much. I'm blessed with so much. And so I can't read past this story without questioning, is Jesus talking to me too? Do the things that are in my life, distract me from Jesus. Last week we saw that with the Pharisee, what was it that was distracting him and keeping him from recognizing how good God was? Do you remember? What made him despise other people was the fact that he was looking at other people. He was measuring himself by other people. He said, thank you that I'm not like the extortioners. Thank you that I'm not like the adulterers. Thank you that I'm not like these people. Whereas the publican... He recognized how good God was. His eyes were focused on God and he couldn't even look up to God and said, be merciful, be a reconciliation, be propitiation to me, a sinner. 
If you're not sure what I'm talking about, last week's sermon is on the internet. You can go there and get it. But he prayed that prayer and walked away justified. So the problem last week was they were focused on other people. What is the rich young ruler's problem? Is he focused on other people? Is he focused on himself? Yeah, probably. But also, he's focused on his stuff. He's focused on his possessions. He's focused on the things that he needs to do. He's a ruler. He has responsibilities. He has potential to change the Jewish economy. He has the potential to to unseat the Romans. He has all of this potential in his life. All of these things that he needs to do. All of these possessions. And he has his eyes fixed on those. And so he walks away from Jesus sorrowfully. How tragic this is. Jesus was inviting him to fellowship with himself. He's saying, sell all your things. Once you've sold them all, then what I want you to do is to come and follow me. (laughs) I want for you to come and live in my camp. I want for you to walk with me each and every day. I want for you to be my right-hand man. I want a closer friendship with you. I want fellowship with you. And the rich young ruler wanted that. And yet he walked away sorrowful because it cost too much and jesus goes on to say verse 24 when jesus saw that he became very sorrowful he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of god friends don't let that pass you by this morning and say well i'm not rich it's talking to all of us Jesus is saying something to our hearts today. It is not easy with all that we possess, with all that we have, all the distractions in modern day America. This is not something harsh. This is not something hurtful. This is something that a God of love looking at us with tender love and compassion in his eyes says it's really hard. With all you've got, with all your possessions, with all the distractions, it's really hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to let that sink deep into my soul this morning. I want to let the God of love love me too, even if he's calling me to something that seems so extreme and so extravagant. It's interesting that if, well, Desire of Ages goes on to say this, page 273. It says, No man who makes any reserve can be the disciple of Christ. This is basically echoing what it says in Luke chapter 14. Keep your finger in Luke 18 and go back to Luke chapter 14 and verse 33. It says this, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls us to radical discipleship. Jesus calls us to complete surrender. He calls us to giving up absolutely everything. Everyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus is called to an experience like that of the rich young ruler. We say, how is this loving? How is this? This is just too hard. Why would God do this? So something interesting. I read an article in the New York Times. I'm not a regular reader of the New York Times, but this was interesting because I was thinking about something. Now, before we put that up on the screen... I was thinking about something. We're going to have two little baby girls. This is going to change our life drastically. And I read something about prenuptial agreements. 
And I realized something. We do not have a prenuptial agreement. A prenuptial agreement would be something where if our marriage came to an end, then our funds would be divided properly and our children. We would know what to do with our children. We're going to have children and we don't have a prenuptial agreement. Well, what if I told you that there's good news because I found out that there are postnuptial agreements? Did you know that? You can actually get a postnuptial agreement. So I haven't talked to Lee about this yet, but what do you guys think? Should we come up with a postnuptial agreement? Here we have two little baby twin girls, and we need to make sure. And I mean, honestly, the way it's probably going to work is she would be far better as a parent, so she'll get full custody of the kids. But, you know, we've got to work these things out just in case our marriage doesn't work out, right? Would you be a little concerned about your pastor if I was honestly thinking that? Lee is shaking her head most vigorously. The rest of you are like, well, maybe that's okay. No, it's not okay. And, and I don't mean to step on toes if you have a prenuptial agreement, but this takes into consideration that I'm not all in, that I expect that this relationship will come to an end. Love in and of itself requires a total and full commitment. In order for two to become one, you've got to be all in. You can't hold reserves and truly love somebody. So the New York Times article I was reading was talking about this, that prenuptial agreements are actually a problem. In fact, it says this, the kind of partners who wish to hold something back from their spouse in a marriage emotionally, practically, and financially, and to look out for number one instead are more likely to end up unhappy and divorced. This is fascinating. This is a guy, W. Bradford Wilcox, who's done studies on marriages, and he's found for a fact that marriages with prenuptial agreements are more likely to end in divorce, and they're more likely to be unhappy marriages. So if you have one, go ahead and get rid of it this afternoon. No, on Monday. They've actually found that when we reserve something, that it hampers our love. When we're holding back. Now, recently I was talking to somebody, and uh, hopefully they don't mind me that I would share this, uh, but they were telling me that as you get older, marriage becomes a much bigger deal. They said, when I was a teenager, it wasn't a big deal. You just get married, and yeah, we'll combine our lives, and that's great. And I'm glad that Lee and I got married younger, I guess, for that reason. But they said, when you get older, to my age, and this individual's in the retirement arena, Things. And they said, when it, you think about dating at this point, it is no longer about love. It is a business transaction. They said, I have a friend who is a divorce attorney who's told me that I need to just consider that I've given away 50% of my assets to that person. So they said, you know what I do? When I go to date a person and they talk about marriage, I say, well, what are you bringing to the table? <laughs> Now, I'm not saying that that's a good idea, but here's the thing. Love of necessity requires being all in. I'm not going to get a postnuptial agreement because all that I have is Leah's. All that I have is for those baby girls, and I don't have any other plans for my life. And Jesus is calling us to the exact same thing. The reason I'm willing to do this is because I know the love that she already has for me. And I know the love that I've experienced from her. 
The New York Times article goes on to say this, if you wish to experience the best that marriage has to offer, find a partner who is willing to give you everything and do the same for them. Your odds of finding wedding, wedded bliss will be higher than your peers with prenups. It's a fact that when we're all in, love becomes a greater reality. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and loved him. And so he said, give up everything and come and follow me. Do you see why he's asking him to do this? It's not to be hard. Jesus himself had already left heaven. He left his throne. He left all of the glories of heaven and he left those things behind to come and walk a homeless life to bless people's lives. And he says, you want to join me in this? Let's be in it together. I'd like to be in fellowship with you, but I can't be in fellowship with you because I'm not living that life and I'm calling you to live this one. Jesus calls us to something big and something vast. If you go on and reading in Luke chapter 18, verse 25 says this, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So I put a picture up here on the screen. Now, some, some have deduced from this that in actuality, he's not really talking about a camel and a needle. That in fact, he's talking about something that was a tradition that was developed a few hundred years after Christ that we actually have no archaeological evidence for, and that is that there was a gate called the Eye of a Needle. If you want to believe that, you can believe it, but there's no evidence for that. I'm just telling you that today. What I believe is what Jesus goes on to say. Keep that picture up there because Jesus goes on to say this, and I want you just to be picturing that as I read it. The disciples say to him, who then can be saved? But He said in verse 27, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Jesus wanted them to grasp an impossible reality. Can you imagine taking a camel, he says, the biggest animal that you regularly deal with. Can you imagine taking this camel and fitting him through the smallest hole that you can picture, the eye of a needle? He says, that's how impossible it is. That's how hard it is, not just for a rich person, but for any person to be saved. This is heavy what Jesus is teaching us, saying it is impossible with men. And friends, there is something key that we need to grasp here. Let's go ahead and put that verse up there. Luke chapter 18 and verse 27. And I want you just to repeat the first phrase with me. But he said, The things which are impossible with men. Have you grasped that it is impossible for you to do anything to merit your salvation? Have you grasped that there is nothing that you can do to inherit eternal life? That you cannot keep the commandments well enough? That it is an impossibility for you to be saved in your own strength. Have you grasped that? Have you let it sink in deep? Because I'll be honest with you, I'm a pastor. I've studied theology for years and years, and it has only been over the last few years that this has begun to sink a little deeper into my heart. And yet I'll still find during the week that I'm wondering, am I good enough? Do I measure up? Is this what God needs? And you will never measure up. And the more that you wonder about it, the more that you look at yourself, the more that you will be led, like we talked about last week, to despise other people. In our Christian experience, 
we often come out of the gate excited, saying, all right, I'm going to be the first Christian ever to live perfectly. I understand that the Ten Commandments are important. I was baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm going to keep the Sabbath perfectly. I'm going to do all these things just like God has called me to do. That's often how our Christian journey starts. But we've got to come to the next step, and that is to realize that this is impossible with man. Have you come there yet? Have you come smack up against the fact that perfection is not attainable for you? I hope that you have. And if you haven't, grapple with this. Stay here until you grasp it because this is what will lead you like the publican to say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be helasmos, the Greek word. Be propitiation. Be reconciliation. Be all that I need. But if you've come to that realization, then I want you to complete this verse with me. Let's, let's repeat it again, okay? I want you to walk out with one verse memorized today, okay? The things which are impossible with men, what does it go on to say? Are possible with God. Have you grasped this fact? Have you grasped that not only is it impossible for you to live a perfect life, not only is it impossible for you to keep the commandments in this lifetime, but that it is possible with God? Have you come to a realization that God is not only willing, but he's able and desirous of empowering you to live a life that is filled with love, to enable you and empower you in his righteousness to keep the commandments? Have you come to the realization that not only is it impossible with yourself, but it is possible with God? It's easy for us to say yes, I think, but I realize that a lot of times the discouragement that we have in chasing after God, the, the formalism that we begin to participate in is often due to the fact we don't really believe that God has something more for us. We don't really believe that he can give us that overflow of love. Yeah, I can love people at church, but my wife, my husband, that guy at work, that neighbor, I don't really believe that God is that good. But the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Christ's Object Lessons, page 394, says it like this, but with God... All things are possible. This is how it's possible. By beholding the matchless love of Christ, the selfish heart will be melted and subdued. Friends, he calls you to complete and total surrender. I'm not telling you to walk out of here and sell all that you have today. But I'm telling you that if there is anything in your life that you're hanging on to, if it's your time, if it's your money, if it's your possessions, if it's your car, if it's your job, if it's where you consider your status in life to be, any of that will separate you from Jesus. And I'm not telling you to work harder in order to get a heart to be able to get rid of that stuff. What I'm telling you is look at Jesus. And as you look your heart will be melted and subdued. Look at the matchless love of Jesus. Look and look and look. The problem for the rich young ruler was he came to Jesus. He was kindled. He had that love burning in him because he saw how good Jesus was. But he turned away sorrowful. He stopped looking at Jesus. 
Friends, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. The things that you've longed for victory over, God wants to give you victory. The very next quotation there from Christ's Olive Lessons, page 404, it says, Feeling our inefficiency, we are to contemplate Christ, and through him who is the strength of all strength, the thought of all thought, the willing and obedient will gain victory after victory. If we haven't been experiencing that, if I haven't been experiencing that, could it be that I've taken my eyes off of the one who has matchless love for me and that my heart is no longer softened and subdued because I've taken my eyes off of Jesus? There was a young man by the name of C.T. Stoddard. He was born in 1860. Now, C.T. Stoddard and his two brothers had a gift. They played cricket. Now, we as Americans often don't know very much about cricket, but he actually became very proficient at cricket to the place where he played in one of the first matches, I think it was, between England and Australia. Now, he was from England, and England actually lost, but he was famous. And a preacher came through town. It was actually a Moody series, I believe it was, and in this, this preaching, he was convicted, and another pastor came and, and talked to him and said, do you know that you have salvation? And in that moment, he knelt down, and he said he had this peace and joy flood through him that he never had experienced before. And then, he went back to playing cricket. He went back to school, and he and his brothers continued playing cricket. For the next six years, he went on as a Christian playing cricket. And he said later how backslidden his life really was, how empty he really was, how he was lacking that joy that he had first felt. And then one day, one of his brothers got really sick, and he was on his deathbed, and he said as he was there on his deathbed, suddenly this popped into his mind. He said to himself, what is all the fame of being a cricket player? What is all the fame, the flattery worth, when a man comes to face eternity. I mean, where are the rich young rulers' things today? The bones are probably being dug up somewhere in Israel. The, the gold is probably lost. The, the land obviously was sold to somebody else. What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes face to face to eternity? And as he began to think about it, he said, you know what? I need to give my all to Jesus. He went on to say this, I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. He had his eyes fixed on another world and C.T. Stoddard decided to join Hudson Taylor in going to the inland mission in China and he gave himself in serving those in missions there. And after he'd been in, in inland China for a while, his dad, who was really wealthy, passed away. And C.T. Stoddard was in his will actually with 29,000 pounds. Now that doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but this was 1885. And in 1885 standards, if you consider with inflation, that's about $4.6 million. So here he is, a missionary in inland China. This huge gift comes in. You know what he decides to do with it? He says, well, I'll write a 500-pound check to George Mueller for his orphanages, and I'll write a 500-pound check to this organization, to this organization. He gave away all of it. Well, actually, he gave the last little bit to the lady that he was going to marry. And she had the same giving heart that she actually, before they got married, she said, I want to give this to somebody. And she passed that money on 
and they were back to having nothing. He went on to live his life for missions. Eventually, he was in the Congo when he passed away, having given his entire life, having sacrificed a career in cricket, having sacrificed all of that money, having given it all up for Jesus. And this is what he said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He gave all to the one who'd given all to him. Friends, today I'm not asking you to walk out of here determined to give more. I'm asking you to walk out of here determined to look at Jesus' matchless love more. Because Jesus didn't hold anything back. Jesus, while having heaven, gave it all up in order to come save you. And he simply asks for you to join him in that. Committing all of your stuff to him. He'll show you what to do with it. He'll show you the timing and the way to use it for the blessing of others. But it's not for you anymore. It's for the blessing of others. As you keep looking at Jesus and his matchless love, your priorities are going to shift because you are becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Would you join me in just bowing your heads and asking Jesus to help you to look more fully at his matchless love? Jesus You really are beautiful. You really do have so much in store for us. And yet, God, so often I find in my own heart that I have held so much in reserve from you. And God, today, I for myself just want to say, I'm all in. Jesus, take all that I have. It's all for you. If that's your commitment this morning, I just want you to Raise your hand to Jesus and just say, Jesus, my promises are like ropes of sand, but I simply want to raise my hand and say, you can have it all. Take my heart, take my life, take my energy, take my possessions. I just want to fix my eyes on you and use all that I have for your glory. Father, thank you that the things which are impossible with men are possible with you that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that you want to work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Father, bless my friends as they go out from here to fix their eyes on Jesus. Lord, I pray that we'd wake up each morning with a hunger for you, that we would open our Bibles just asking you to reveal your love to us, that we would keep our eyes fixed on the matchless love of Jesus, and that this would lead us to surrender all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.